0: Welcome to the CTO Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every couple of weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with top engineering leaders. Today, I'm speaking with Kai Gogwilt, the CTO and co-founder of Ironclad. Kai, thanks so much for agreeing to chat today. Happy to be on. It's always interesting to see the different paths that people take to becoming CTOs. Now, in your case, I see that it was quite a, an abbreviated path, right? Your your last gig was a software engineer at Palantir for three months, uh, and then before that, a research assistant at MIT. How did you end up going from software engineer at Palantir to co-founder and CTO at Ironclad?
1: Yeah, so to maybe give um, to maybe give my brief background a little bit more. Um, so before uh, co-founding uh, Ironclad, I was a software engineer at Palantir. Uh, for about four years, Um, and then before that I did my undergraduate and master's work at MIT in computer science and physics. Um, So yeah, as you mentioned, an abbreviated path to CTO um, via kind of the co-founder route. And maybe to elaborate a bit on what CTO at Ironclad means, um, I think it's very in line with our uh, cultural values, um, in particular our value around drive and helping the team around you. Um, I view my role as uh, co-founder and CTO is really trying to help unblock other people on the team um, and make sure that they're empowered to take the best path uh, to a solution. Um, so maybe somewhat less traditional CTO role, um, but I think that's something that a lot of uh, leaders generally aspire to. And I think that's definitely the type of leadership that we look for uh, within Ironclad.
0: That makes sense. So to have an idea, approximately how big is the kind of product engineering or Iron cloud at the moment?
1: Yeah. So we're just under 40 people under product design and engineering, um, and that fits within a wider context of 130 uh, full-time employees at the company as a whole.
0: Now, as you scaled to that, up, presumably as a co-founder, it started with you. Were you just kind of banging on a keyboard and then you started to hire devs? Did you go straight out and raise around and hire six people? What, how did uh, the organization start to evolve?
1: Yeah. So uh, Jason, Baymig, and myself uh, co-founded uh, actually almost five years ago, almost to the date.
0: <laughs> Congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And, and the first few months were definitely um, us banging out a prototype together. Um, So I do still have a bit of software engineering skills, although uh, they are underutilized at this time in the company's uh, life cycle. If I reflect back on the past five years, uh, it's been a journey of like uh, really scaling. Um, And I think this is something that every single uh, gladiator um, we call uh, teammates at Ironclad gladiators Um, But every single gladiator over the years has had to tremendously scale as our company goes through different stages so quickly. Um, And for myself, uh, that's meant really trying to learn quickly about uh, the stage of company we're in, uh, start to level up in some of the areas uh, that are really necessary for the company at that time, um, and then uh, defer to much more experienced and better people uh, at those things and kind of step aside and allow them to jump in. Um, So as a key example there, um, Jason Lee, our VP of engineering, uh, amazing engineering leader uh, coming from uh, a couple of uh, companies and then um, also from uh, Salesforce IQ. He joined us actually extremely early, and I think this is a common theme in Ironclad of really awesome leaders um, coming in, partnering with us a little bit earlier, wanting to build that right foundation, really seeing that long term foundation from the start. Uh, and so for me, uh, it's been a tremendous learning experience working with Jason Lee to level up quickly around things like bringing on the right engineering uh, team, orienting teams around uh, particular, particular goals correctly, um, and really investing in the correct fashion in both the uh, groundwork and infrastructure that allows us to maintain our velocity, while also balancing kind of the feature development necessary to maintain uh, and expand the business.
0: That makes sense. So approximately how big was the product engineering org when you brought on Jason as a VP of engineering?
1: I think Jason Lee joined probably when our product team was sub 10. I want to say like eight.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's great. Because a lot of people, you know, I I see some companies where they get to like 15 people and they think about it, but they wait till they've got 40 or 50 people and everything's falling apart. They're like, Maybe we need a grown-up here to give us a hand with some of this stuff. Uh, so bringing him on at eight—that—that that must be just really useful, just in terms of having somebody who presumably has seen that process before.
1: Absolutely, and I think you see that across our leadership team at Ironclad. Everyone coming in um, a little bit at the earlier stage, at least in terms of how the team is developed. You know, Joyce coming in with a marketing team of four, three. <laughs> um, Damon coming on with, uh, with two AEs and a BDR uh, to lead sales efforts. Uh, Jen Powell, our CEO, o, coming in when the company was sub-20 people. Uh, so lots of really experienced leaders coming in to really try to build a solid foundation. Um, and I think this, again, it goes back to a little bit of uh, Ironclad's core values around uh, trying to build from a solid base, trying to invest in ourselves and our processes early on. And I'll use that to enable the balance of kind of like building quickly, but also building a culture that is enduring.
0: That makes sense. There's lots of different types of CTOs. And often the CTO is simply whatever's missing, right? It's like, oh, this stuff needs done and I'm a co-founder. I better take care of it. Um, I've seen people with a CTO background who are effectively focused on customer success. Others who are heads down in DevOps and Kubernetes because that's the problem that they have right now. I know that you said in general terms, your job is to unblock people. Do you find that there are particular parts of the CTO role that you're focused on now? Is it connecting people with customers? Is it focus on architecture? Is it vision? Is it hiring? What are the, the core elements of the role at this point in time for you?
1: At this point in time, the, uh, the CTO role for me is at the boundaries of different areas of the company. And what I mean by that is we're 130 people. We're at this stage where every single team is really trying to scale. Um, and so there's a lot of tendency to focus a little bit internally. And we're starting to really rely on uh, some of the work we've done over the past couple of years to forge cross-functional relationships between individuals on different teams um, in order to keep that communication flowing. And so while that's happening, um, I'm really seeing my role as CTO as kind of helping to solidify those cross-functional boundaries, trying to make sure that the customer success team and the product design and engineering teams are continuing to talk, continuing to have that um, individual-to-individual connection um, and trying to help uh, each team come up with some of the processes by which they can, in a more structured way, uh, scale that communication. To maybe put that in terms, um, more concrete terms, I guess I'm I'm pretty closely aligned with product and design right now. As I mentioned before about Jason Lee being an absolutely amazing engineering leader from very, very early on, Um, he and I have partnered very closely in terms of uh, helping to to grow um, the engineering product and design teams in a very intentful fashion. So have definitely relied on that partnership a ton. But yeah, at this juncture, that means I'm more closely aligned, I think, with product than with engineering, um, although I still continue to jump in on the odd bug here or there or uh, add the random pull requests uh, until one of our engineers tells me to stop. I'll probably keep doing that. <laughs> um, but more generally, uh, thinking about how to connect individuals on different teams with one another so that they don't have to go through through me or through Jason Lee or through someone else to, to actually find out what they um, what the best path to the solution and what the best solution to the problem is.
0: That makes sense. When you look at the, uh, firstly, I got to ask, so you, you say still looking at the occasional bargain PR, at what point in time, how big was the product engineering team when you finally realized that coding was not a material part of your job? It became under 10 hours a week.
1: It was fairly recently. It was probably probably wrapped up in March. So we are in December now. So it's probably been about nine months since I went through a stint of kind of 10 hours of coding a week um, or more. And since then, I've submitted the odd pull request and bug fix. And, you know, whenever we have hackathons internally, I'll always make sure to participate, even if it's a nights and weekends thing for me. Um, But yeah, it's probably been about nine months since I last did that. It's probably been more than nine months since I last, since I realized that I probably shouldn't do that, but I absolutely love building things. I absolutely love the creative process of product ideation to execution and all of the tooling around building something in a way that's maintainable long term, you know, bringing in best practices, learning about best practices for maintainability and scale. Uh, so I love that stuff and it's been difficult for me to let go of it. And I think I've found a good balance. Uh, but I've certainly also uh, caused some headache for certain people on the team. And I'm the kind of person who, as soon as I hear that it's, it's too much and I've got to stop contributing there, uh, I will I will absolutely stop.
0: <laughs> How did that feel, making that transition from at Palantir, presumably you were sitting down writing code a good part of the time. What was it like moving from that to moving to a role where you didn't, you weren't as hands-on in the code?
1: I've had to level up and learn a lot of different things uh, very quickly. Um, and I think the the blessing and the curse of that is it's been an absolutely amazing learning experience and continues to seem like it's going to be an amazing learning experience. But it also means that I've ended up a bit as the jack of all trades, master of none um, for anything that I've done uh, over the past five years and probably for anything that I'm doing now uh, or going forward there's going to be someone at Ironclad who's far, far better than me uh, at that thing. Uh, and this actually started very, very early on. You know, As soon as we started bringing on more people onto the product design and engineering team, quickly I became you know, the least experienced engineer in some areas and things like that. And I still remember the first pull request that I submitted and one of the engineers rejected the, the pull request. Um, <laughs>
0: that's a good culture that they felt comfortable doing that.
1: Absolutely. That was, that was the, uh, that was actually like the bright spot for me. I was like, I actually touted that a couple of times um, in, in other conversations. It's like, this is the kind of culture that we want to create the kind of culture where it's not top down. um, Really individuals can contribute to the overall vision. And in fact, uh, you know, if the CTO submits a pull request, that really doesn't make any sense or that really need to like hone a little bit more before it becomes part of our long-term platform, uh, then you should just reject it. (laughs) And you should give constructive feedback on how uh, you might improve on
0: it. Now, it's really easy to talk about culture, but it's hard to actually implement, enforce, sustain, support. What are some of the things that you do to sustain that culture, to create and sustain that culture?
1: Part of it for me, and this is maybe less the CTO, my CTO role and more my co-founder role, Has been to interview every single individual joining the company until it doesn't scale (laughs) and probably past where it should have scaled. And then in addition to that, to really try to get to know um, every individual who joins the company through at least like a one on one and hopefully get to know them more on a personal level as well. Again, until it probably a little past its scale, its scaling. You know, over the past 12 months, we've think 3x uh, in headcount. And when you do that, I think that you, it's easy to celebrate that victory of, wow, we're now three times bigger than we were 12 months ago. But it's also, you're running a real risk with your culture, um, with your team. Onboarding new members of the team so quickly really can take a toll on other efforts that people are trying to focus on. And that's been a primary focus for us. You know, We run on an annual company plan here at Ironclad. And one of the focuses, explicit focuses this year was to scale the culture. And I think my contribution to that has been to uh, make sure to get to know every single individual on the team, make sure to interview every individual on the team. And with an eye to scaling that, you know, in 2020. (laughs) Um, And I think the rest of the team has also focused around trying to make sure that this growth uh, doesn't come at the cost of our culture and really, you know, the, the reason why we're all here working together, you know, what makes Iron Cloud a special place to be.
0: Now, just to ask, you talked about an, an annual planning cycle. How do you balance that with the flexibility to kind of run experiments and like how, what might an annual goal look like from an engineering perspective that isn't completely out of date six weeks into the year?
1: Yeah, that's a great question it's really tough <laughs> um and i think maybe uh yeah charting out a product and engineering roadmap 12 months into the future is uh nigh impossible in this uh in this age um and yeah you do need flexibility however there is also a lot of value in honing what the vision is, what the shared vision is going to be 12 months in advance, um, because this is not just a product design and engineering problem. This is a customer success. This is a sales. This is a marketing problem. How can you chart out what marketing is going to do 12 months from now? But the exercise is still useful because how every team goes about what they're doing has knock-on effects to every other team. And so at least stating what the goals are over 12 months, um, probably in broader terms is useful to align the different teams to make sure that everyone's goals, everyone's vision for the next 12 months actually ties in with what everyone else's vision is for what they're going to do over the next 12 months. So yes, for a concrete example, you know, one of our, one of our product team goals over the past 12 months has been to make contracts engaging. Uh, and so, Ironclad, we're a digital contracting platform. I like to think of it as developer tools applied to the uh, in-house legal space. Um, and so, contracts are like code. Um, you know, on the face of it, they aren't necessarily that engaging. Um, but when you look at all the people who need to weigh in on it to make a good contract, um, you need to understand the business requirements. You need to understand the legal implications. It's really a collaborative process. And so uh, making contracts engaging has been a product priority for us um, in our 12 month plan um, that has really led to creating a very collaborative platform, fueling some of the feature efforts that we've made around in contract collaboration. And uh, that's been super helpful because uh, and it's been helpful to kind of state that 12 months in advance, we're going to be adding features in this theme. With the stated measure, measurable goal, because the marketing team has been able to help understand and guide the the message of the market towards that. Our customer success team has had a clear sense of at least where the vision of the product is, um, even twelve months in advance. Um, the sales team has been able to speak to you know, you know, this is not something we have today, uh, but our product team, one of their goals is around making contracts engaging, so. Um, that's the flavor of kind of the team level 12 months month goals that happen. Um, you can also have the six week sprints and the uh, sessions where, you, you know, the exploratory areas where you put something out there and collect the results um, and then iterate very quickly. Um, but the broad strokes are useful to have as well. And even though they are uh, kind of hellish to chart out 12 months in advance, um, there's real value in just creating a shared vision across the entire company. Um, and uh, enabling people to kind of see, okay, this is the stated broad goal that we can get to. And maybe this is how Kai seems to think we're going to get there, but I found a better way. And, uh, you know, this, these uh, broad stated goals give individuals the opportunity and the um, tools to actually chart their own course or to suggest a better charted course to the priority
0: Definitely. Well, that's the nice thing. When you have like themes and KPI driven goals, rather than being super prescriptive on, we want you to build this feature with this UI, with these buttons. But the nice thing is that you you get the, the wisdom and the experience of your whole team and they can kind of bring their full self to work. The flip side is that it requires a very well aligned team, right? If you've got a bunch of engineers who are like, I don't know, just tell me where the buttons should be and what color they should be. So firstly, how do you hire for an engineering team that actually cares about the customer's problems?
1: Great question. I think it is absolutely critical to hire and build a team that cares about the end user. And I guess there are probably clear examples of companies that have not done that and are wildly successful. Um, but that, from the beginning at Ironclad, we've emphasized engaging with the user. And I've talked to a couple of earlier stage founders, especially the technical founders, wondering this exact thing. And there's kind of this like scary thing, especially early in the co- early in a company's development where you kind of want to keep the engineers focused on writing code because you've just got to build something and you've just got to get it to market. And so you say like, okay, don't touch the engineers, don't talk to them. Like they're gonna do their thing. Um, let's protect them at all costs. And I think that is I think that is uh, actually, really destructive, both in the short term and definitely in the long term. Um, so from the beginning instead, uh, what we've emphasized is uh, making sure that the engineering team, the design team, the product team are all very close to uh, the user and don't have to like go through anyone or aren't protected from anyone in that regard. What we've developed almost accidentally, um, honestly, is also like an incredible base for our customer success function. So uh, legal engineers are the team that really helps customers kind of think through um, their strategy for deploying Ironclad, uh, really understands deeply not only the technical implications, but also some of the the legal implications and are kind of the expert across how the modern legal team is going to be constructed um, going forward. You know, they're legal engineers embed deeply with Different legal teams with different customers and have seen um, the new way of legal operations, the way, new way that legal works um, in all of these different teams. And so they really are the experts in seeing what's working and what's not working about kind of this new age of, of the legal team. And then what that's what that's enabled and by making sure that the legal engineering team and the customer success team in general are really in close communication with the engineers, with the product managers, with the designers, um, has been to have the legal engineers be kind of the voice of the customer, the voice of the user, and deeply embed with the, the product design engineering organization to realize the vision that's actually going to move the needle for the end user.
0: Just to ask this idea of legal engineers, do some or all of them have a background in, in law in any way, or is it simply a, a domain that they pick up once they join Ironclad?
1: Great question. It's a mix. Um, there are some legal engineers with a very deep background in law. Um, you know, former um, f- uh, former law firm associates, uh, people who have been paralegals or on legal operations teams. Um, there are also people with consulting backgrounds. Um, actually, there's one person with both a consulting background and a legal background. I think the the thing that really unites uh, the the legal engineering team. Is a passion for bringing technology to the law, and to really like bring that expertise and that advice on the process, and advice on how legal operations teams are operating in this um, new age, and a passion for kind of like lifting up the the legal community and bringing it back from a kind of like cost center to uh, a business partner.
0: So if you have legal engineers, firstly, to get an idea of what proportion of the overall product engineering team would you say legal engineers comprise?
1: So our legal engineering team uh, falls within our customer success team. And I think we have about uh, 10 legal engineers on the team.
0: Got it. So that's about 25% of product engineering, give or take. Mm-hmm. Now, how do they relate to your core engineering team? And how do you make sure that the core engineering team is focused on servicing the legal engineers, not just complaining about all the stupid feature requests they keep coming up with?
1: Yeah, I think that's something that we've had to instill from the very beginning. Um, And part of this is really emphasizing some of our cultural values from early on. Uh, One of our uh, values is empathy. Um, and we use this to really talk about cross-functional empathy. I like to say Ironclad has been, if a lot of teams struggle with kind of the tragedy of the commons problem, I would say Ironclad maybe struggles with the opposite, which is if someone asks for help in an open forum, uh, you'll get too many people jumping in trying to help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and uh, we've talked about this. So it's actually like a part of our culture that um and part of our values that we actually feel is like the, the trade-off that we want to make. Uh, we would much rather lose um, some overall efficiency in the organization because people are too willing to help uh, than discourage people from helping and uh, run into a tragedy of the common situation. And so every single teammate at Ironclad, customer success, engineering included, has a strong amount of empathy for uh, other individuals on the team. Um, If you just, we did a hackathon pretty recently, and I would say probably about 50% of the projects that people worked on, their presentations led with like, so and so on our team is struggling with this. So I built this thing to help them. And so that we've had that kind of instilled from the get go that empathy, that understanding that it takes a village. (laughs) And uh, you may be thinking all the time about your engineering problem. And you may feel like you're burning the midnight oil to, to make sure that the engineering um, for this product gets out just that much faster. But recognizing that the, the marketing team is also burning the midnight oil to like, make it happen, and the legal engineering team is making sure that they get something out even faster than the customer is asking for, that, that empathy is absolutely critical.
0: Now, it can be hard when you have teams that are siloed organizationally. It can sometimes get in the way of that collaboration and empathy. Are there some things that you do specifically to keep the legal engineers connected with the rest of the engineering organization? Do you rotate people through? Is there lunch and learns or there offsites? How do you keep those social bonds strong?
1: So there, as we've scaled, we started out. It's we started out just being able to rely on the social connections between individuals to make sure that everyone was tied in. Um, And as we looked over the past 12 months, as we looked at scaling the team up 3x, we also started to try to lean into some of the areas that we thought would scale that connection. Some of those have worked, some of those haven't. Um, Some of the ones that have worked are a product reps program um, or a point of contact program on the product design and eng team. What that means is every week when a product team, feature team meets to discuss the progress kind of in a weekly or daily stand up, there there will be a POC or a product rep uh, from different teams uh, sitting with them, asking questions are really just part of the feature team. And so we usually have someone from legal engineering, someone from customer success management, um, someone from sales. Kind of depending on the feature, there will be someone who's a rep for that, and they'll be responsible for, for kind of transmitting information back and forth uh, with their respective teams. So that's the functional purpose. But I think there's also a cultural purpose here, which is uh, making that product rep be part of the feature team itself. And creating those one-to-one connections between individuals on the engineering team, um, design and product team, uh, and individuals on the legal engineering team or the customer success management team. And then, you know, if we celebrate a victory of launching like an integration or something like that, if we if the team goes out to dinner, um, you can be sure that the product reps are going to be invited to that that dinner as well. Um, so leaning into that program a lot to make sure that. Uh, we continue to have cross-functional collaboration and communication between individuals on the team and not just kind of a top-down communication approach to, um, to make sure that there's alignment. A- another thing that we've done has been uh, lunch and learns. Um, actually, you mentioned that. And show and tell. So we try to create opportunities for people to show what they're working on Um, We try to emphasize that it's a safe space, so you can share things that maybe are a little farther out, um, things that you're not sure are going to work, but at least want to show that you're working on it. And something that I've been really, really excited by uh, when seeing these show-and-tells is that they're very, very cross-functional. They came out of ideas that we heard from uh, other companies that did show-and-tells, and and usually those show-and-tells were very engineering or product-centric. You know, here's the early cut at this new feature we're working on. And that's that's really exciting. And we absolutely have have that. But we also get cross-functional things. Here's like our content strategy. Here's a new sales deck that we're thinking of piloting. Here's like the finances of like, and how we're categorizing our spend. It's really encouraging to see people willing and excited to share what they're working on across every single team. And almost more exciting is to see the excitement that people on other teams have with things that, you know, from an outsider perspective, you might not think they would find that interesting. And then uh, the same thing goes for kind of like having cross-functional hackathons uh, and seeing, you know, the seeing the projects that people get excited by um, are not necessarily the ones you would expect uh, people to be excited by. You would expect maybe the sales team to be super excited by this like, new flashy feature or something, but actually they get super excited by a feature that's going to increase the leverage of the the support team or something like that. Um, So super exciting to see those things. And then the follow-on from that is actually, honestly, the the sign that this seems to be working is the organic cross-functional gestures that happen um, across the organization. Like at the end of last quarter, the marketing team putting together a gift basket for our sales team to like get them um, to like, you know, get them in that last home stretch or something like that. Um, and then the sales team actually doing the same thing to the, for the CS team um, at the beginning of Q4. <laughs> and so seeing those kinds of gestures and that kind of thought and intent uh, around cross-functional empathy and understanding that it takes a village and it's not just, you know, sales or marketing or engineering um, that is doing the heavy lifting is is really gratifying and something that um, I've been really really gratified to to see and proud of.
0: And is there any part of the the hiring process? It's a very specific type of engineer that really wants to focus on the outcomes for the customers and be cross functional and be empathetic for the the sales teams and the challenges that they have. Are there any questions or, th- or things that you do in the hiring process that help you to select for engineers that you think will thrive in that kind of culture?
1: Good question. Something that we look for consistently, um, definitely within engineering, but kind of more broadly in the company, are signs that people think not only about improving themselves, but improving the team around them. And we attribute this to our drive value. Um, but I think this is a concept that's like more generally helpful. On the engineering side, um, I love to hear stories about, um, from engineers about working on something that benefited the entire team. Um, and oftentimes, good examples of this are uh, developer experience things, uh, especially uh, in kind of an engineering resource-constrained uh, environment that we're in. It's fairly rare to have a developer experience dedicated team, um, at least at a certain scale of company or at least at a certain scale of engineering team. And even if you do have that dedicated team, they really need to communicate with people who are using the development environment and trying to build net new features on top of that or maintain existing features to inform that. And so I love to hear about people contributing in some way to that, whether it's actually making the developer experience better or whether it's helping the DevX team on something uh, or investing heavily in like the testing uh, structure or things like that. So that's one part of it is trying to select for people who are going to improve the team around them. And that's kind of how it can sometimes manifest in an engineering context. I think the other thing that's interesting to ask about is impact. Many promising individuals and many promising teammates uh, really value impact, but everyone defines impact differently. And so really digging into what people mean when they say, I want to have an impact on the company. I want to have an impact on the project that I work on. can say a lot about how they're going to behave how they're going to interact with teammates, how they're going to interact with the customer. Uh, specifically people who want to have an impact. there's like some people who want to have an impact on the end user who want to who really just are gratified by building something and seeing people interact and use it um, and actually I would probably classify myself as like in that camp. And then there are also people who uh, really want to have an impact by seeing internal people like just be better um or to craft like a like an elegant solution to something that just is so maintainable that's so that really just increases the velocity of the entire team and so there's just different types of impact and i think all of them are generally good um but having like a good mix of that and maybe early on selecting for the teammates who are um the engineers who are going to be really driven by the impact of seeing something interacted with and seeing like users uh using it um that's probably like that, that's where we started, at least. Um, and I think that's kind of like informed a lot of our culture, because even now, as we're diversifying the impact that different members of our engineering team want to have, uh, there is this basis of just always talking to the user, always understanding, always having empathy uh, for what the user is trying to accomplish and the struggles that they're going through in accomplishing that with or without uh, Ironclad.
0: Now, I've got to ask, do you primarily hire in the Bay Area or do you have distributed engineering? Uh,
1: That's another place where we've taken a pretty hard stance. Um, So uh, almost our entire team is in San Francisco. Uh, We just opened a New York office, but that is sales and customer success. So our entire product design and engineering team is based in San Francisco, um, and we do not have any like, hidden team of contractors uh, on any part of our our future development. Uh, We also don't really do remote work. We'd love for someone else to figure out how to do remote work or mixed remote and in in office uh, culture correctly. Uh, I've seen a lot of people struggle with it. I've seen a lot of people try it, maybe have some success with it. Um, But we've taken a pretty hard stance on Uh, creating and emphasizing in-person communication and both capitalizing on the cross-functional communication that you get and the context sharing that you get from that, uh, while also eating the cost of not being able to bring on people who really do want to have a remote remote work culture.
0: And then given that how do you compete? I hear there are one or two other companies in the Bay Area that are hiring engineers. How, how do you think about standing out, differentiating, and, and getting the the right applicants for your roles?
1: I think part of it might be kind of the scale that we're competing at, um, or the scale of team that we're trying to hire is reasonable. And so just being clear about what our values are, you know, not we emphasize in-person communication. Is that something that you love or is that something that you hate if you love it like come come work with us so you really emphasize that we don't really go in between if you hate it there are plenty of as you pointed out there are a couple of companies in the bay area that are, that are <laughs> looking for you and then i think really it it is about kind of taking hard stances on on a couple of those on a couple of those things and really leaning in and emphasizing the parts of our team environment um the parts of our business that are interesting um, So a couple of those things will be in-person communication. We have an in-person team. If you like being in an office and knowing your teammates and getting to know them on a like in-person basis, Ironclad uh, hits that super well. If you want to have a lot of input and impact and you want to be able to uh, really be forced to understand how all the other teams are using the, the product and not necessarily have like the clearest spec Um, but really be asked to go beyond that and think about how you can actually impact the, the end result to be greater than what anyone conceived of. Then ironclad is, is also great, but you'll have to understand other stuff. You can't just understand the engineering side. Um, if you're interested in building like a maintainable system that we want to be able to work on, you know, make the bed you sleep in kind of thing, then, then we're doing that. We're investing in our infrastructure. And we have the benefit of doing that um, in part because we don't have like crazy data or usage requirements that would require you to bring in some hacky technology um, that's at a like fee 0one or something like that in order to deal with that scale that we hit overnight or something like that. We actually have the ability to plan farther ahead. Um, but that being said, if, if data scale is like that, the thing that really resonates with you, maybe somewhere else might be better. So really just leaning into... Our strengths and, and being clear about them and not being shy, coupled with the fact that we are still a young company and still a company that's like expanding expanding quickly, but has a small team and therefore has like smaller uh, ambitions in terms of number of people that we want to bring onto the team, uh, has allowed us to compete
0: in that way. Kai, thanks so much for taking the time to talk.
1: Yeah, likewise, really appreciate your thoughtful questions.
0: This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.